Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 48 of X-Lapsed, where uh, we're going to keep it rolling with our coverage of X-Men Plus Fantastic Four. So today, we'll hop right in. It's X-Men Plus Fantastic Four, issue number two. Set in April 2020 cover date. Stories called Broken Borders. Written by Chip Zosky, with pencils by Terry Dodson. Inks by Rachel Dodson, Call Story, and Ransom Getty. Colors, Laura Martin. Letters, VCs, Joe Caramagna. Editor, Ballesteros, Smith, Brevoort, and Sabolski. Cover price, $3.99. And this one went on sale February 26th of 2020. So we kick things off and let's roll call it up. Of course, we've got our two lists of roll calls here. One goes under Feared and Hated, and they include Call Me Kate, Storm, Charles Xavier, Bishop, Magneto, Cyclops, Multiple Man, Emma Frost, and Nightcrawler. Then we got our four fearless friends, of which there are six. Mr. Fantastic, Invisible Woman, Human Torch, Thing, Franklin Richards, and Valeria Richards. We open the comic story here with with Cyclops and the Fantastic Four in a like a holographic communique. We're in the Richards's living room here, and Cyclops is you know being beamed in. And uh, those Richards's believe that the mutants have abducted their children because hey, they ain't there anymore. Cyclops assures them that this is not the case at all. The Fantastic Four kind of flipped the script here, suggesting that the X Men don't consider any of their concerns valid since they're only human. And so they don't have all that newfound mutant privilege, I suppose. Cyclops kind of fumbles and stumbles with his response. And while on the subject, he uh, informs the fam here that Krakoa is Franklin's birthright, but it ain't Valeria's. Now, this causes Sue to go all mama lion on us. She flips out, yelling at the projection, claiming that Cyclops and the X-Men put a higher value on Franklin's life than they do Val's. Cyclops, once again, bless him, he fumbles and stumbles, trying to assure her that that wasn't what he meant at all. To which, Sue smashes the projector, which ends the conversation. Back to Krakoa, where Magneto asks Scott if this is going to be a problem. Scott turns and replies, yeah, it's going to be a problem. From here, double page spread of creds, uh, which I neglected to comment on last episode. It begs the question here, um... Maybe someone can enlighten me. Do all Marvel books come with two pages of credits now? I mean, the X-Books are the only ones I read, and I assumed it was just like a weird stylistic choice. I suppose that just might be the way Marvel does business nowadays. Uh, I guess anything to keep us from getting a single extra page of story, I guess. Now back to comics. We're at 4 Yancey Street, and Reed is imploring Sue not to escalate the situation any further. Now Sue ain't hearing none of that. She's ready to take the fight to the X-Men. Reed reminds her that Hey, mutants are a nation now, so to attack them would be something of an act of war. 
Sue don't give a rat's ass about that, and Ben and Johnny agree. So it looks like our four fearless friends are Krakoa-bound. We shift scenes over to the Marauder, where Kitty is approaching Dr. Doom. He zaps her with his mitt, she goes down, falls underwater, and passes out. Which, uh, I don't know, seems to be her go-to these days, isn't it? Anywho, sometime later, she wakes up, finding herself seated at a banquet table with Doom and the Richards kids. Victor immediately assures her that she and her crew are safe, for the moment. He also informs her that the mutant refugees she was after are here on this uncharted island. It's the, uh, creatively named Doom Island. I guess can't win them all. Val glibly asks Doom what he's hiding, which is cute. Uh, Makes me really miss Val and Doom's... Odd little, you know, repartee there. Their, their cute little relationship. Uh, Kitty pipes in, wondering why Doom doesn't just keep his mutants on Latveria. And you see, Doom's no dummy. He knows the way the world is changing, and so, upon realizing that having mutants will make him something of a target of Krakoa, and probably result in a conflict that will ultimately end in war, he moved his muties to this little island. So this is a, a little bit of risk mitigation Doom style. He then reveals that he has an interest in helping to get to the bottom of Franklin's power problems. He vows to make Franklin be all that he can be. From here we go to an info page. We're back in the Journal of Reed Richards, and this is entry number 661026, and it's called The Mutant Population. We see here, perhaps for the first time since Hoxpox docks, that there are approximately 200,000 mutants living on Krakoa. It seems awfully high, doesn't it? I probably would have guessed, like, a thousand? (laughs) Two hundred thousand, yikes. Uh, There were also ten thousand mutants currently not living on Krakoa, and about a dozen or so Omega-level mutants. Uh, Dozen. Should should I start waxing nostalgic over the concept of the Twelve again? Or am I still the only person on the planet stuck on that? Maybe we'll talk about the Twelve a little bit later on today. We'll see. From here, we get a panel with Jamie Madrox and his dupes doing a sweep of the abandoned Marauder, which was enough to get him listed on the roll call. Now, he ain't finding diddly squat, but he notes that the boat is off the coast of Japan, where it shouldn't be. Worth noting, the way Dotson draws Jamie here is very much the way he draws Franklin, so for a split second, I thought this was Franklin, which was very confusing. Now, the quiet council confers to discuss what might be about to happen. Xavier claims that none of the Marauders nor Franklin are currently pinging on Cerebro. We get an aside from Emma Frost, who teases Cyclops about having a seat you know, at the big boys' table. He smiles and assures her that he lives to serve, which probably tells us more than we need to know about their sex life. During this weird bit of flirtation, Xavier is able to locate the missing muties. Magneto immediately gets in gear to go fetch him. Cyclops is like, hey, pump the brakes. And he reminds everybody that Krakoa is very likely in danger. Since, you know, the Fantastic Four are ticked off and probably already well on their way. Xavier here sort of sides with Magneto, but Cyclops warns that they're going to need a strong line of defense here on the, on the home front. Magneto's all force more. He doesn't care. He doesn't suffer the Fantastic. Nightcrawler pipes in to justify getting his spot on the roll call, just to remind Eric about how formidable Reed and his crew are. He then mentions that, you know, due to the Invisible Woman's powers, they could be darn near anywhere. And, well, they are. Suddenly, the Quiet Council quarters are... starts getting wrecked, and the Invisible Thing socks Magneto in the head. Cyclops lets fly an optic blast, which, as luck would have it, strikes Sue hard enough to KO her. 
Suddenly, the Fantastic Four pop back into view. They're no longer invisible, but they are wearing some odd helmeted uniforms to block out those with mind-affecting powers. The four make a break for it, with Reed carrying Sue. From here, we jump back to Doom Island, where Doom, Kitty, and the kids are walking through the foliage. Kitty presses her hand into a wall, realizing she's depowered, she can't phase through it, and she asks if Doom depowered the rest of her teammates as well. He says, you know, that sort of thing isn't his style. Blocking out a specific gene is more up Reed Richards' alley, to which, zing. Val agrees that her father can be overbearing, but uh, doesn't allow Doom to change the subject. She presses on how he stopped Kitty from using her powers, and Doom says, yeah, he's really missed Val a lot, and uh, yeah, so have I. I, I. This is such a fun relationship. Uh, Doom reflects back to the 1987 Fantastic Four vs. X-Men miniseries when he helped Kitty with her powers. From here, he claims to know more about them than Kitty does herself, which creeps Ms. Pride out more than a little bit. The Force enter a castle and then into a laboratory where Doom assures Franklin that here he will help him reach his full potential. Franklin worries that there'll be a catch, which, you know, stands to reason. Back to Krakoa, where the mutants are chasing the Fantastic Four. Nightcrawler bamfs into Sakharid in the face, Cyclops just starts optic blasting everybody, and he's soon backed up by uh, some cameo-making mutants here. We've got Colossus, Rogue, Gambit, Psylocke, Cannonball, Pixie maybe, and, and of course Wolverine. So, if I'm not mistaken, and I might be, we haven't seen Colossus since, like, that one panel in X-Force number one when he was in, like, the like the bottom part of Kit, one of Kitty's stolen boats. Uh, Cannonball, uh, we don't even know if he'll return to Krakoa from Shi'ar space yet. And Psylocke, I mean, this is clearly Quanan, but I'd almost bet money that they intended for this to be Betsy. Uh, we, we keep piling editors into these books, and I, I still can't place the when of this crew. And of course, that's also discounting the Kitty and Quentin questions that uh, we had last issue. Anyway, Reed tries shaking Sue back to consciousness, knowing that their only hope lies in her. Uh, Then he has an idea that, I don't know, kind of loses me a bit. He removes Sue's mask, which allows Emma Frost to use her powers on her, which somehow gives Sue something of a jumpstart? Eh, alright. Now, while Wolverine is hacking away at the thing, with his claws out... Sue lets loose with a force field which tosses the mutants to, you know, all four corners of the uh, of the island here. The Fantastic Four retreat to the Fantastic Car and take off. And somewhere, somehow, in this fracas, Sue was able to deduce the coordinates of Doom Island. Did I miss something here? Are these pages out of order? This, I, I, hmm, this feels very convenient. Whatever the case, Xavier tells Cyclops that they're going to have to assemble a team and head to Doom Island themselves. Now, speaking of Doom Island, Kitty has her crew return to her, and they're none the worse for wear, though they're pretty annoyed about having been locked up for the past little while. Kitty gives them the deets, and uh, yeah, they're with Doom, and uh, yeah, she's made a deal with him. They're going to be here as his guests while he works on fixing Franklin. Bishop is pretty incredulous, and uh, probably rightly so. He does get a single line of dialogue here, which I suppose justifies him getting a blip on the roll call page. Elsewhere, Franklin and Val chat about whether or not this is a good idea. Val reminds Franklin that, while their family and Doom have their differences, for some reason, Uncle Doom has a soft spot for the kids. She suggests that Doom won't do anything to hurt either one of them. Plus, if he can fix Franklin, it'll give Doom an opportunity to prove that he's smarter than Reed Richards, which he'll never pass up on. Now we pop over to Doom himself, who's chatting with... 
Victorious, who is a weird centurion-looking character, uh, who is currently overseeing the rebuild of Latveria. And that place always seems to be in a constant state of rebuild, doesn't it? Anyway, Victorious is concerned about potential visitors to Doom Island, to which our main man reveals that he is more than prepared. And so we close out this issue and this half of the miniseries by seeing that Doom has himself a whole fleet of Sentinels ready to go, just in case. That's where we leave it, and our next episode will be looking at 4X3, or Fantastic Four X-Men 3, or X-Men Fantastic Four 3, however you want to say it. But before we do that, how about we talk about what we just learned here. Now, I'm still enjoying this quite a bit. Though there are maybe a few holes here, um, I love that we're doing callbacks to the 87 Fantastic Four vs. X-Men miniseries. That, uh, that sort of thing is right up my alley. However, so far, we're getting little inconsistent bits of current year X-continuity. Um, I'm guessing that uh, this was being written over the course of the first few months of the Dawn of X books, uh, perhaps even earlier. So it's hard to really like assign blame to anybody for inconsistencies or a perceived lack of attention to detail. Um, this is probably why this story doesn't come with a note to inform us that it likely occurs prior to Kitty's death in Marauders number 6, because I'd wager that the Fantastic Four editorial office probably didn't even know. I mean, that said, this isn't me making excuses. At the end of the day, there are like four editors assigned to this book. You'd, you'd hope there'd be a measure of communication between the offices. Uh, speaking of which, the assortment of cameos we get here showed some more, perhaps, in attention to detail, or, or at least didn't sit right with me. In my opinion, I mean, Colossus has not yet been properly introduced or reintroduced post-Hoxpox. Uh, I highly doubt... That his first bit of action was supposed to be, you know, eating up the background in a sort of kind of throwaway fight scene. Uh, Cannonball, if this was Cannonball, because it, I mean, he was blasting like Cannonball. I don't know very many mutants that look like that. As far as we know, he doesn't even live here. He's up in Chenandalir or wherever. Uh, as for Quanan, I wonder if Dodson was just, you know, given a list of Excalibur characters. And since we see Psylocke alongside Rogue and Gambit, maybe just assume that this was what Betsy still looked like? And, and yeah, I'm, I'm totally projecting here, but it, it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, another weird bit was how Sue woke up, and how she was able to procure the coordinates for Doom Island. Uh, I feel like I'm missing something here. Did Sue somehow manifest a secondary non-mutation here, which grants her the ability to glean information from other people's minds? Maybe this is obvious, and I'm just being, you know, a dense idiot, and that, that is always a possibility, but uh, I kind of got lost here. Uh, feels like they were, like, running up against their page allotment for the issue and had to wrap it up real quick, and this is how they chose to do it. Uh, keeping with Sue for a bit, her depiction here as a mama lion was pretty cool. It's uh, nice get, seeing her get a little bit of fire, you know? And giving the team their direction rather than just standing by waiting for Reed to give the orders. Um, now, where this issue truly shined for me was in the Cyclops and Doom scenes. I really enjoyed Cyclops acting... Like Cyclops. Um, he wasn't a, like a psychopath like he'd been for much of the 2010s. And he wasn't the corny suburban sitcom dad that he's been portrayed as since Dawn of X started. His attempts at diplomacy here felt legit. And his warnings to the Quiet Council reminded me of far simpler times. When uh, Scott could be counted on <laughs> to be relatively rational and level-headed. 
Uh, now, Doom, he was great here, too. And, uh, I mean, who could hate any scene that pits him against Val- Valeria, right? Uh, their verbal sparring here was a treat. And, again, it's one of those things that really makes me miss reading the Fantastic Four. And maybe one of these days it'll be safe to go back. Now, I appreciated Doom's realization that this conflict might come to a head in full-on war. Uh, his self-preservation in sending Latvarian mutants to Doom Island makes a ton of sense. Uh, his desire to fix Franklin where Reed couldn't or wouldn't also makes a ton of sense. Not only does it reinforce the fact that Doom has a soft spot for the kids, but it also plays up the idea that Doom will go to any lengths to prove that he's smarter than his old rival. With all that said, I can't say that I'm looking forward to seeing the X-Men fight a bunch of Sentinels, but hopefully that won't eat up too much of the second half of this miniseries. Overall, though, I'm still very, very happy with this series, and I'm optimistic that it'll maintain its level of quality. Few little, you know, nitpicks aside, this is uh, this is some great stuff, and I'm really having a good time with it. So, uh, I mean, and that's all you can really ask for, you know? If you, if you had fun and you're looking forward to more, uh, it doesn't get much better than that when it comes to comic books, does it? Especially current year ones. Now... Before I let you guys go, we do have a little bit of a mail to uh, attend to here. We're going to start with Damien, and he's talking about Fallen Angels number six. And he says, oh boy, that was terrible. (laughs) And yes, yes it was. (laughs) He continues, I had an actual laugh out loud moment when I swiped to the next panel and Quinan had butterfly wings. I'm beginning to wonder if we're being pranked by Marvel. Who thought this was a good idea and why? And <laughs> I'm sure there were at least like two or three ninth graders who thought this was wildly deep, right? It had to be, right? Oh boy. Damien continues, I need to take back my earlier comment that this could have been one issue of Giant Size X-Men. There really isn't enough in here to be a 20-page story. Totally. Totally. I still maintain that there wasn't even six pages of necessary content here. Um, So much wasted time. Uh, We added characters to the cast just so they could stand around and do nothing. We got flashbacks just so they could be revisited in every single subsequent issue. We got poems and prose in order to eat up the info pages, which ate up more pages of the books. This was a pacing disaster. And a true victim. <laughs> it's, it's it's a victim of the Marvel method of, you know, six issues, dot, 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 or else. I mean, over the course of these six issues, we had nearly identical missions to check in on black-eyed Apothean children. Identical conversations to remind us that Betsy Braddock once inhabited Quinan's body and that caterpillars turned into butterflies. God, you know, usually when I have a problem with single-issue pacing... I tend to give the companies the benefit of the doubt. I fall back to the old chestnut that, you know, quote, this probably reads better in trade. You know, I think that's something that uh, we fence-sitters <laughs> of the reviewing world or the discussion world uh, will will fall back on. You know, I don't want to say every, something's bad, so I try to look at it through a different point of view here. It's like, okay, well, this isn't paced good for a single-issue deal, but... Read it all in one go, bada-bing, bada-boom, you get something good. Here, though, this story is so damn repetitive and pointless that I'd argue that reading it in collected edition might actually make it worse. It might make everything the, the, the repetition, easy for me to say, even more apparent. And uh, 
boy, I couldn't imagine reading a whole all 120 some odd pages of, the, of this at once. Oof. Uh, Damien continues. Are we completely sure this isn't an elaborate hoax? <laughs> Maybe it's the first comic written by artificial intelligence. It's a meta narrative on Hoxbox. It was written by the villain to punish humanity. Probably not. Oh, boy. Uh, I doubt even an AI would be this boilerplate and repetitive. Um, and I mean, I I'm, maybe I'm an AI because I'm feeling I'm feeling like I'm being so repetitive with my comments that Fallen Angels re- was repetitive that I'm wandering into the realm of like self-parody here. Like I'm just sending out a macro every time. Every time I see Fallen Angels, I say repetitive. Oh, boy. Uh, Damien wraps up with, Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if they eventually kill Mora solely so they can remove this story from continuity. Personally, I'd give ECT a go if I could remove it from my memory. <laughs> I'm picturing, like, Mora finding out that this story happening and happened and it being like the start of that weird sideways season of Lost where it's like pouring rain, she screeches up in like an SUV, she comes out, she stares into the camera and yells, We have to go back! Because this was pretty rotten. Oh boy, thank you for that laugh, Damien. I, I really needed it, and I really appreciated it. <laughs> but thankfully, we're done with Fallen Angels, uh, as, as far as I can tell. I mean, who knows what the next month's solicits will bring, but uh, fingers crossed that uh, this is what it is. Uh, next we have next we have uh, a part of a conversation I had with uh, with our friend Evan Bevins here discussing X-Men number one and I'm including this because uh, it made me think of things I hadn't thought of and uh, he says I finished Hoxpox and I'm into Dawn of X I totally thought the thing thought the same thing about Cyclops and Polaris in X-Men number one but don't think it was addressed in any of the first six issues and that's a reference to uh, Cyclops and Polaris having like a weird sort of um, flirtation uh, or maybe not so much a flirtation but just the way the way the dialogue went it felt it felt like they were together in a way um, Cyclops was talking about all the things he has and he says and he turns to Polaris and he says I have you as though like you know they have each other they're together not as a you know brother sister mutant thing but as a uh, romantic entanglement plus the fact that she refused to come back to summer house because havoc was going to be there led me to believe that perhaps there was some sort of a dalliance between scott and lorna and uh it doesn't get mentioned again i'm not even sure if lorna's been in a comic since then I'm trying to think back she hasn't been prominent that's for sure she might have been in the background of a panel or two but we haven't seen her since then, so uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that's all about, but I- I'm I'm guessing that that's probably just me thinking too hard on something and uh, really not having much in the way of uh, evidence. Uh, Evan continues, I came up with a weird conspiracy theory involving Professor X tweaking the resurrected Cyclops' mind to make him attracted to Polaris to sort of unite the houses of Summers and M., but that could have been no, done with Havoc, so that's probably wrong. And that's a really interesting point that I hadn't considered here, that uh, we do have these disparate houses on Krakoa, and I think a lot of us have posited that Professor X is manipulating. Um, he's pulling some strings with these resurrections here. We don't know the extent of his level of control 
over the resurrection. So it stands to reason, after everything we know about Xavier and how little we've grown to trust him, especially in this weird new role, there certainly could be a, uh, a, a train of thought to to put the house, the summer house and the house of M on some sort of, uh, some sort of unity, some sort of united front. And, uh, that reminds me a lot of, um, the, the Alan Moore pitch for Twilight of the Superheroes, uh, that we actually covered here on an episode of Weird Comics History on this channel. I think it was episode 23, 22 or 23. I think it was 23 though, uh, where this is, a Twilight of the Superheroes is written by Alan Moore, and it's a it's not so far flung in future story uh, of the DC superheroes, but they're all separated into houses. You have like the the House of Steel for the Superman family. You have the House of Thunder for the Captain Marvel family. The House of Titans for the Titans, and uh, the whole crux of the story is that um, the House of Steel and the House of Thunder. There's going to be a wedding. Uh, Mary Marvel Jr. is going to be part of an arranged marriage with Superboy. So this is an attempt to join the House of Thunder with the House of Steel, you know? And that when, when Evan brought up having Cyclops attracted to Polaris, <laughs> I immediately thought of Twilight of the Superheroes here because of uh, the doing... Combining forces for political clout and political power, it's an interesting uh, train of thought, and to think that maybe Xavier might uh, might be behind something like that is uh, is scary and also very, very interesting. There's a lot of meat on that bone should they actually go down that path, which remains to be seen, may never be seen, but uh, it's definitely fun food for thought, for sure. So thank you so much for uh, filling my brain with that today, Evan. I really appreciate that. It really helped me to, uh, first it reminded me of that scene, and second it allowed me to look at it a different way. So thank you. And we're going to wrap up with a tweet from Andrew at Mighty Evil Doom. He says, I listened to Major X-Lapsed Episode 1 and would like to hear you cover the rest. And I think you're the only one. <laughs> Major X-Lapsed flopped. Oh, boy. <laughs> Nobody wanted to hear that. I, uh, I knew it would be divisive. I was hopeful. At, at, you know, worst case scenario, it would be divisive. But uh, no, it was kind of just, uh, just, just nothing. <laughs> It was nothing. So uh, thank you for that, uh, Andrew. I'm, I'm glad you listened to it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And uh, I am still considering uh, covering the rest of that run. Uh, I, I had fun with it. Um, it's something that I don't want to say I could turn my brain off during it, but compared to a Hox Pox Docs book, it's a lot more what you see is what you get. You know, there isn't so much... I'm not looking for symbols everywhere. I'm not looking to be the smartest X-Fan in the room by pointing something out that's never been pointed out before. It's just fun, silly comics. It's uh, really... I mean, I, I, said, I think I said in the announcement that uh, we're going to party like it's 1991, and that's exactly how it felt. It uh, made no mistake about it. It didn't try to be something it wasn't. It was just a fun read, and... Uh, and if you you know if you stop to think about it, it is what it is. And if uh, if that's for you, then you're gonna love it. If it's not for you, you're gonna hate it. So, you know, I, I definitely appreciate you checking it out. And uh, I am I still do have designs on uh, on wrapping up Major X Lapsed, all 
seven episodes, I suppose it'll be when all said and done. Uh, at least at this point, they haven't announced a major X two yet, but uh, I suppose we'll see. But thank you so much, and. Uh, if anybody else would like to write in and tell me how much you hated or loved Major X Lapsed or didn't even know it existed, please do so. You could reach me at uh, weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com or on Twitter at Ace Comics. You could find show notes and stuff at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. And, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to talk about the 12 again uh, because I'm starting a project there. Actually, you already started it. I wax nostalgic and I over-romanticize the concept of the 12 so much and uh, for the longest time, I was going to put together a big project on the origins of the Twelve. It was going to be a Weird Comics History episode. Then I decided it was going to be a Cosmic Treadmill episode, because I was doing a lot of X-Men mysteries. Um, we already did the X-Trader. Uh, we did uh, the Brotherhood with the writer X, you know. Uh, we were going to do the Third Summer's Brother. We were going to do the Twelve. There was just a few of these X-Mysteries that I wanted to have entire episodes on, but unfortunately we never got around to doing them. And I kind of just uh, put, the, put them in my back pocket, you know, and figured, eh, maybe one of these days I'll get around to it. But today... As or actually, as you're listening to this, a couple days ago at the blog, I started with a look at X Factor number thirteen from 1987, which was the first mention of the Twelve, and I intend to follow through and cover all the mentions of the Twelve, so we can watch it evolve and change and be abandoned and be can be re- resumed when it's a totally different thing that really sucked. But uh, I think it'll be a good time, and then ultimately, when I'm done with it. I'll have a, I'll probably have a pretty good script going, so I could do a uh, maybe a Chris's on Infinite Earths episode covering the entire concept of the Twelve. Uh, just yeah, commit something to audio, right? But uh, but yeah, if, if you're interested in seeing what this Twelve is that I've been, you know, whinging about ever since we started this, uh, you could find it at Chris's on Infinite and that'll be the October 22nd post for the first one. I, I'll have a tag on it for the 12, so it should be easy to find everything that's written there, and I'll probably do a little side page for it as well. But for now, it's it started. <laughs> and uh, if Blogger is a little bit more cooperative over the next several days, I'll have many more parts up before you know it. Um, what else? What else? You can find uh, show notes at that place. You can find uh, xlaps.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can find the Facebook group at 90s X-Men, and also the full audio archives, including that uh, exhaustive look at uh, Twilight of the Superheroes at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll just link to Twilight of the Superheroes in today's show notes, just uh, for complete completionist sake and uh, for ease, because uh, the channel has a lot of stuff on it, and it could be hard to find something. So I got you back. I'll, I'll have it there. So hopefully... Anybody who didn't hear it who might want to hear it can hear it. But I think that's where we'll leave it for today. Uh, I want to thank you all so, so much for hanging out and uh, spending your time with me as we rapidly approach the landmark, milestone, multi-covered 50th episode of this program. So thank you all so, so much. It means more to me than I can even put into words, and uh, that is not as sarcastic as it sounds, trust me. But till next time, when we uh, cover... X-Men plus Fantastic Four number three. I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.
your heart. Always searching.